As the 19th century dawned in America, the young country began to assert itself in all kinds of new ways. They developed their own businesses, their own literature, their own art forms, and yes, their own cemeteries. They sought to distinguish themselves from their European ancestors, and as an influx of immigrants and industrialization swept across the land, the need only became greater. It was in this crucible that the real history of American cemeteries was forged, the one which set us apart, the one which made America the defining character in the story of burial across the world. As the 19th century emerged, a small, dedicated group of people, scientists, horticulturists, and yes, businessmen, would define what cemeteries would look like for the next century. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Doom with a View. So continuing our discussion of the general history of American cemeteries from last week, <clears throat> and you will excuse me, I do have a little bit of a cold, but I will try to soldier through and be as clear as I can. You'll remember that James Hill House and the people of New Haven, Connecticut, had really broken away from the model. As they faced these yellow fever epidemics, they had broken away and they started what would today become known as the Grove Street Burial Ground. This new burial ground was unique in a lot of ways. First of all, it was organized by lot holders who actually purchased lots, and these lot holders had a vote in how the cemetery was maintained. Also, the planning meant that large portions of the cemetery could be bought by different groups, things like Yale University, churches. It also had a plan. There would be a fence. There would be trees planted. There would be an overall plan for maintenance to make sure that the cemetery was not neglected over time. And it worked. The New Haven Burial Ground or the Grove Street Burial Ground is still very much there today. You can go visit it at any time. It was the first step in the direction of what we're going to be discussing today. Because it caught on in a small sense, but the small is the key part of that story. My topic for today is the rural cemetery movement. And if you are even passingly familiar with cemeteries, you probably know something about this. The rural cemetery movement in terms of a revolution is hard to understate. I can remember when I was getting my graduate degree, we had a final assignment. Instead of taking a comprehensive test, we had to develop a curriculum where we picked the 100 most significant buildings in the history of the world as if we were going to teach a class in it. And there were certain criteria where, you know, 10 had to be from Africa, 10 had to be from Asia, and so on and so forth. It was intended to keep us from being too Eurocentric, which unfortunately is our tendency, and even I did not really escape that trap when I was making my list. But at the end, you had 10 free spots. And the way I approached this was I actually mostly chose institutional buildings and sites because the history of the world isn't just written in pretty buildings. It's not just written in iconic buildings. It's written in people's lives. So things like pumping stations, uh, sewage treatment plants, power plants, and yes, cemeteries are really important. And the technology that was developed at those places, while it isn't often held really high on the scale of things, see how long you go without indoor plumbing. See how long you can go without fresh running water. And all of those things, while they are not maybe as sexy as the Empire State Building or as iconic as the White House, they're still important. And so one of those 10 free things that I chose was Mount Auburn Cemetery. Because Mount Auburn Cemetery is the institution that launches the rural cemetery movement I'm going to argue even more so than its predecessor, Père Lachaise in Paris, 
because it created a model that could not only be observed and studied, but could be replicated. And it was. It was on a scale that few other things have been. And it was on a scale that few other things which retain that. You know, you can look at a really significant building, the Chrysler Building in New York. Did it inspire a lot of other Art Deco skyscrapers? Sure, but how many of them are still standing? The same can be said of a lot of things. Particularly in the 20th century, so much of our architectural history here in the United States was lost. We often can't see that story anymore. But when it comes to the rural cemetery movement, we really can. You can see where the story starts with Mount Auburn, how it continues with Greenwood in Brooklyn, and then Laurel Hill in Philadelphia. And you can see that continuous story. The same way that we are continuing the story last week because it really does start with Grove Street Burial Ground. And you can see where it will go from here because there is a continuous story of American cemeteries. And Mount Auburn will influence the military cemeteries that are established during the Civil War. The military cemeteries in Mount Auburn will establish Spring Grove in Cincinnati. They will go on and on and on. And then next week when we talk about Memorial Parks, they all influence that. Both in positive and negative ways. Sometimes the new technology seeks to correct mistakes that were made in the previous iteration. And I'll talk a little bit today about how Mount Auburn was different from Grove Street. How they improved on certain things, how they changed others. But I'm going to have to ask a little bit of indulgence. Before I can tell the story of Mount Auburn, I have to tell a couple of things. First, I have to talk about Père Lachaise in Paris. So I'm going to start by talking about that. Then, as I was trying to tell this story, I sat down and I made a list. And I made a list of the things that created Mount Auburn. And I made a list of five major things. So I'm going to go through and I'm going to talk about those things. And I'm going to talk about the same way where I talked about New Haven and I talked about the influences of Puritanism and how Grocery Burial Ground changed that last week. I am also going to talk about how these five factors shaped the creation of what would become the rural cemetery movement. So I'm going to tease you just a little bit because then we're going to get there. So to start off with, we have to go back to Europe. Obviously, this is important. We have overwhelmingly European immigrants who are settling the American colonies and the new country. In Europe, burial was mainly the provenance of the church. It had been for millennia. And this was something that was problematic in a couple of ways. First of all, the church had a monopoly. Second of all, it meant that there were no standards. So we have to actually start before Père Lachaise with the Cemetery of the Holy Innocents in Paris. The Cemetery of the Holy Innocents began being used in the medieval period. We're not sure exactly when, but it's believed going back to approximately 1200. The Cemetery of the Holy Innocents no longer exists, but it was located in the part of Paris known as Les Halles. So if you're familiar, this is a market part of the city today. Historically, it was always a market part of the city. And it was also at a central location. And this served roughly 22 parishes in Paris. That's not to say that there were not other burial grounds, but this was the largest, this was the busiest, and it served the overwhelming majority of large churches. It was run by the church, and it was originally started as what we would think of as a traditional cemetery with individual burials. But as Paris developed as a city, it soon became untenable to do that. So the practice at the Cemetery of the Holy Innocents, which if you don't remember your Bible story, the slaughter of the innocents coincides with the birth of Christ, where King Herod hears this rumor that a Messiah will be born among the children. So he goes out and he slaughters all of the Jewish babies that are born. Jesus escapes because his family flees to Egypt. 
going back to that, so <clears throat> a dark story behind the name of the cemetery. There also was a church that was directly adjacent to it, which was the Church of the Holy Innocents. But as the population of Paris grew, individual burial was no longer an option. Now, this is probably a good place to backtrack and remind you that permanent burial was never a thing. In most places, whether it was Paris, Vienna, wherever you lived, you did not get permanent burial. Your grave was essentially rented, usually for a period of six to eight years, depending on where you were. Now, at Holy Innocence, they buried in pits. And these are just as gross as you would think they are, where they are long trenches that are dug. And these trenches could hold approximately 1,500 bodies. Essentially, bodies were stacked like cordwood. They were covered with quicklime to cut down on the smell, and they were kept open for however long it took to fill them, sometimes weeks. This is a very common practice. Uh, probably the one of the few movies I've ever seen this depicted in is the movie Amadeus, if you have seen it, about the life of Mozart. A lot of people tend to think that this is like a barbaric thing or this is something that only happened during epidemics. But no, it was just a practicality. In a very busy, thriving city that didn't have a lot of space, this was how they dealt with the dead. <clears throat> By the 14th and 15th century, they had constructed what were known as charnel houses. So what would happen is that after a period of six to eight years, your body was removed from the grave. At that point, you would have decomposed down to skeletal remains, and the bones were removed, and they were stacked in these buildings known as charnel houses. Now, as you can imagine, the church had a rather thriving business. Um, the Cemetery of the Holy Innocents was used during the plague. It was used during many, many wars, and just the overall terrible lifestyle that was basically anywhere in the world pre-antibiotics. By the time that the 18th century rolled around, so think around the time of the American Revolution, 1770s, 1780s, what starts to happen is that the ground at the Cemetery of the Holy Innocents literally can no longer decompose bodies. There is a huge collapse in the year 1780 where one of the walls collapses and these barely decomposed rotting bodies spill into the streets. And it's because the soil chemically had lost the ability to decompose bodies. So they shut it down and they make the decision that they are going to try something new. Now this doesn't happen right away. But eventually what they will do is they will essentially create a diamond of cemeteries, one to serve the north, south, east, and west of Paris with one in the center. The best known and still the best, the most famous of these is known as Père Lachaise. So Père Lachaise was named after the confessor to Louis XIV, who had at one time lived on this land. He lived from 1624 to 1707. And this was a hillside overlooking Paris. So it's a very picturesque piece of land. So a man named Alexander Theodore Bruggenart, he designs the area. And it is a large cemetery, roughly 110 acres. And it opens in 1804. It will become the first municipal cemetery in Paris. And if this sounds familiar, this is a lot like what happened at Grove Street where they took the power out of the hands of the churches and they made a municipal city burying ground that was open to all. And in fact, this opens right after Napoleon is crowned emperor. He publicly states, quote, every citizen has the right to be buried regardless of race or religion. So at the time, it is very much a reflection of the changing values in France. After the French Revolution, the church loses power, the government takes it, and the government takes over the job of burying the dead. Now, Perlachesse is also different in a number of other ways. First of all, what they do is they lay it out. It is planned. What I said about Alexander Theodore Bruggenart, he designs it. And it essentially is an L shape, the original one. But there are long alleys. There are streets and roads. And it is laid out 
in a way that is going to be very pleasing and will literally create a necropolis or a city of the dead. Now, at first, Catholics in particular are very hesitant to be buried there. Even though they had kicked the priests out during the French Revolution, it is still a very heavily Catholic country, and they are reluctant because this is not technically consecrated ground. So they do a couple of things to sweeten the pot. They do let the priests come in there, throw a little holy water around, but also they pull the celebrity card. They look to make this place more legitimate by moving the bodies of celebrities there, which sounds crazy, but it's going to be a thing. So first they move the body of Moliere, if you're familiar with the author Moliere, um, as well as Abelard and Heloise, the very famous star-crossed lovers. So their bodies are moved there almost as a tourist attraction and to convince people to buy plots there because now it has sort of a social standing. Now, the other thing that's quite unusual about Père Lachaise is that it is not just a French cemetery, but it also utilizes the English garden style because French style was a little bit more disciplined if you have ever been to the Palace of Versailles. Like, you could see the difference between French and English gardens. So English gardening was a little bit looser. It was a little bit freer. And so it was quite unusual. And people came to see it because it was not what they were used to. Now, this is 1804. Just a couple of years, if you remember, the grocery burial ground was 1796. This doesn't catch on immediately, and it will take a long time for this model to be adopted. But it is out there. There is a very open exchange and communication, and there continued to be. Remember, France was a very close ally during the American Revolution. So this is something that Americans take notice of. It's something that they file away in the back of their minds. So let's now hop, skip, and jump back over to America. And I want to talk about a couple of different trends. In fact, five different trends that are going to influence the development of the rural cemetery movement. I'm going to list them off, and then we're going to go through them one by one. So the first is the Industrial Revolution and the growth of cities. The second is social justice reform and modernization. The third is forging an American identity. The fourth is the Second Great Awakening. And the fifth is the growth of romanticism and transcendentalism in the United States. So, all of these are major influencing factors, and they are the things that are going to largely define rural cemeteries. So let's start by talking about the Industrial Revolution and the growth of cities. Now, as I'm sure you remember from middle school social studies class, the Industrial Revolution is the mechanization of society. Generally, it's considered to start around 1760 and end around 1840. In the United States, it's a little bit narrower window. The beginning of the true Industrial Revolution in the United States is 1793, when Samuel Slater, a man from England, brings the technology in his head to the United States and starts the first water wheel. This place, Slater Mill in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, not far from where I grew up, still there today. You can go visit if you want. But the mechanization of the process, there had been small mechanization, using horses to run grinding wheels for flour and things like that. But for the most part, everything was still done by hand. And that limits a society. Once you start to mechanize things, things go fast. So by 1812, Francis Cabot Lowell had begun to look at ways that you could start to produce things in-house. And 1812 is really important because that's when we kind of go through the second American Revolution where we go to war with England again, particularly over trade routes. The War of 1812 is largely forgotten in American history, but it does influence a lot of things. So for instance, the growth of the trade with China and the Far East only happens because we're no longer trading with Europe. The mechanization of a lot of production methods, where things suddenly are made inside the United States as opposed to importing goods, happens as a result of the War of 1812. 
And so within five years, by the time that Francis Cabot Lowell dies in 1817, they already have this plan. And eventually, the mill town that we all know and love, called Lowell, Massachusetts, will be named after Francis Cabot Lowell. And that is basically where the entire textile production process is mechanized. So by 1817, we have a vastly different society. The other big thing that happens around this time is specialization. And this basically is being able to take machines and specialize them to do different jobs. So it starts in places like Waltham, Massachusetts with clock parts, but it goes quickly. Essentially, if you can machine pieces of metal and if you have machines that can make other machines, so in this case, you're not necessarily requiring a blacksmith to do everything, then you can industrialize a whole wealth of different types of businesses. Now, I'm going to focus on the three big cities right now because they are also the first three that will have rural cemeteries. So Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. Boston is founded in 1630. In the year 1800, it has a population of about 25,000. Ten years later, it has grown by 36% to 33,000. 1820, it has grown by another 28% to 43,000. 1830, it has grown much more significantly by 41% to 61,000. And then by 1840, it will jump 52% to 93,000. So between 1800 and 1840, the population grows by about 70,000 people. Not surprisingly, in 1822, Joshua Quincy, who at the time is the mayor of Boston, proposes a ban of burials inside the city. Because at that point, a population growth of that number really starts to indicate things. And I'm going to give you a little teaser right here that I gave you the numbers up to 1840 specifically for a reason. First of all, that's generally regarded as the end of the Industrial Revolution. There will be a second Industrial Revolution. We're not going to talk about that today. But aside from that, in 1831 is when the first rural cemetery is started. So 1822, they propose a ban on burials in the city. By 1831, we have a new cemetery. And by 1840, between 1830 and 1840, we have the biggest population jump. People see the writing on the wall. They understand the need for change. They are already experiencing the crunch from population growth. This is all a response to that. <clears throat> Let's flip over to New York City. New York City, officially founded, 1683. In 1800, it has a population of 60,000. 1810, it has grown by 59% to 96,000. By 1820, it has grown 28% to 123,000. 1830, it has grown by 64% to 202,500. By 1840, it will grow another 54% to 312,710,000. With those numbers, really New York is where the first rural cemetery should have been founded. Um, They catch up pretty quickly. They absolutely do. But the growth in New York is even more exponential than Boston. And certainly, they were feeling the crunch even before Boston was. So, for example, in 1806, the Board of Health said, Quote, internment of dead bodies within the city ought to be prohibited as vast amounts of decaying animal matter produced by interring the dead near churches, which has been occurring for some time now, plagues the most populous parts of the city. It is impossible that such a quantity of animal remains, even if placed at the greatest depth of internment commonly practiced, can continue to be inoffensive and safe. And to give you perspective, just one church. Uh, The following year in 1807, the African Zion Methodist Episcopal Church cited that they had a single burial vault, just one, underground, and burial vaults were underground, and they had been doing 150 burials per year for the past five years. So 750 burials in five years in a single vault. And they talk about how literally it was unbearable, the stench, when they opened up the door to do another burial. The breaking point for New York also comes the same year, 1822, when there is a yellow fever outbreak. Now, there is no actual 
proof that it is linked to proximity to a burial ground, but they notice that in the area around burial grounds, the people who live there tend to be much more heavily affected. And then quickly looking at Philadelphia, Philadelphia is actually founded the year before New York in 1682. Their growth is not quite as crazy, and unsurprisingly, this is why they will be the third rural cemetery. So in 1800, they have a population of 41,000. 1810, they grow by 30% to 54,000. 1820, they grow by 19% to 63,000. 1830, they grow by 26% to 80,000. And 1840, they grow by 16% to 93,000. So basically, it takes them 40 years to achieve the same kind of numbers that New York does in 10. But still, when you consider how small the population of most places is, this is still growth. And of course, Philadelphia also suffers because in the midst of this, the capital leaves Philadelphia and of course moves south to Washington, D.C. So they lose some of their population because of that. But it gives you a little bit of a glimpse into how the Industrial Revolution and how these changing statistics really also shape what is going on with a need for a place to safely bury the dead. All right, now two and three I'm going to tackle together. Social justice reform and modernization and forging an American identity. America as a young country really didn't have an identity. And so it's interesting that um, Harriet Martineau, who's actually a man, believe it or not, um, wrote in Society in America, quote, whatever else may be true of Americans, it is certain that they have principles of justice and mercy in the treatment of the least happy classes of society, for much, from which we must be glad to learn from. So America decided that they were not going to be the most cultured. They were not going to be the most literary. They were not going to be the most architecturally skilled. What they were going to do is that they were going to be good people, which doesn't really jibe with the American identity today, but it's an interesting thing. Because what I could see is that the way that the world regarded America at this time was that they were upstarts, they were rough and tumble, but that they were using their prosperity and their growth for the moral advancement of humanity. They were looking for methods of dealing with social problems. Now, this is a difficult topic to discuss because how do we mean this? So first of all, we are talking about things that today we take for granted, which I already mentioned some of them. Things like clean water, sewage treatment, gas lighting on streets, improvements that will allow for business, things like steamboats, canals, railroads. But then there are also things for curing people. So there are the things that make people's lives better, those institutional things, which we worked very hard on. And some of the cities that we have already talked about, so for example, Philadelphia and their waterworks is a great example of that. The institutionalization of gaslighting in places like New York and Boston. But in addition to that, there is the idea that they could cure people, that people could be improved. And this was done through different institutions. The main ones are prisons, almshouses and workhouses, asylums, and then schools. But these schools are not just general schools. So America is one of the first places to have free public education that is accessible to all but also schools for the less fortunate, people who are deaf, dumb, and blind. All of these institutions are things that largely did not exist in Europe or did not exist in any modern way. And so this push for social justice reform leads to the establishment of some pretty impressive institutions. And with these, I am going to lump cemeteries into them. Because cemeteries were seen as places of equality, places that were accessible to all, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in the sense that if you look at these institutions, particularly the prisons, the asylums, etc. I read one quote that said, quote, they were not tucked away out of sight, but located in highly visible places, often on hilltops as symbols of the accomplishments and benevolent intentions of their founders. And if you looked at these places and if you read descriptions of them from the 19th century, often they have religious overtones or run by religious or at least Christian 
influenced organizations. And with them were these images of tombs and the resurrection. And this suggested that the individuals who went into these places, to the asylums, to the workhouses, the schools for the deaf, dumb, and blind, they were in darkness, the darkness of sin, and that they could be cured. And that these places offered salvation through grace and redemption, and they could offer you the light on the other side. So is it surprising that cemeteries, the place where the dead are buried in awaiting the resurrection, are also grouped in with this? So cemeteries are seen, and one of the best books that was written about American cemeteries is David Charles Sloan's The Last Great Necessity, and it takes its name from this quote from the dedication of one of the rural cemeteries at the time, I think in Rochester, New York, where they describe cemeteries as the last great necessity of society. That at the end, we need a place to safely, cleanly bury the dead. So cemeteries become lumped in with this reform, and they also become part of the American identity. They are something new, something fresh, something that people have never seen before. And you will see a lot of these European writers who come over, including Charles Dickens, who say, why can't we have cemeteries that look like American cemeteries? They're so beautiful. They're so new. They're so clean. It sounds strange to say that burying the dead was part of the American identity, but for a long time, it really was. Fourth. All right, buckle up. We're going to talk about religion. So we talked about the Calvinist perspective and the way the Puritans viewed death last time and how that influenced the way that their cemeteries were built. Well, the Second Great Awakening does the same thing. So you have to realize because it's called the Second Great Awakening, that there was a First Great Awakening. The First Great Awakening, which happened at the beginning of the 18th century, was a religious movement that basically inflamed people's belief systems. And so the Second Great Awakening, which starts around 1790, will give birth to a number of religions, which you probably still are familiar with today. It starts um, sort of in the Middle South, in the Kentucky-Tennessee region, but it quickly spreads throughout the American colonies. It very much is a reflection of religion at the time because many churches, and I'm, I'm going to call the Methodists out here because the Second Great Awakening is very much a, a Methodist thing. Uh, it affects other groups. It affects Presbyterians and Baptists and things like that, but Methodists definitely because they had this practice which was known as circuit riding where essentially there were itinerant ministers who would go from town to town preaching. And these type of church meetings, these revivals and things like that, are really at the heart of the Second Great Awakening. The core belief that is postulated this time is basically breaking away from the strict view of the Puritans and the Calvinist thinking that we live in a constant anxiety about our salvation. It accelerates things significantly because it is based around what's called post-millennialism. Essentially, the idea that the second coming is coming. It's coming imminently. And it's a forced purification of society. So while Puritans wanted to purify society, they wanted to create a godly society that was sort of a baseline that everyone lived in this baseline fear, and it was your reality. The Second Great Awakening was a much more aggressive story about the Second Coming. And so the Second Coming will supposedly come when the Millennium comes. Now, this is a Millennium with a big M. It is not necessarily Millennium the year 2000. Shut down your computers, get ready for Y2K. This is Millennium with a capital M. And the millennium, as defined in a religious sense, is supposed to be um, the culmination of a long period of peace and happiness. It, it, It is the day of reckoning. And a lot of these groups, probably the most common that you will recall is the Seventh Day Adventists, who the Seventh Day Adventists thought that this was coming in the 1840s, that period passed, and somehow these churches still exist because they have adopted the broader view of the millennium, that the millennium Big M is not on a particular date. But so Seventh-day Adventists and the Latter-day Saints are the two big groups that emerge out of this period. 
They emerge out of that region of upper state New York known as the burnt over region. There are a lot of revivals. There is a lot of frank, frankly crazy religious nonsense going on at this time. But this all, and, I'm, and this is going to go into number five. <clears throat> this is very much a rejection of this period in between. So you have strict Puritanism, and then you have a period around the time of the American Revolution and slightly before where everything is dominated by rationalism and the Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment, again, if you remember your high school history class, is this period of time where there is a very logical view of the world, where philosophers come in and they try to understand the nature of mankind. So you have people like John Locke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who are trying to break down what it is exactly that makes humanity tick. And at this time, there is very much an abandonment of religion, and there's a shift towards deism. And the majority of the founding fathers in the United States practiced deism. And their attitude was that God was the watchmaker, that he wound the clock up and he let it go. And I apologize. If there's anybody out there that's a serious theologian, they probably think that I am glossing over a lot of this. I am trying to give you just enough religious context that you can understand what's going on without overwhelming you because this is not a religious podcast and we're not focusing on theology. But deism very much was not, you know, God is interventionist. God performs miracles. God comes down and smites people. It was, yes, God created the universe. There is an ultimate overarching being but we're on our own. And so this was very much a rejection of that. And people were looking to God as a much more immediate and a much more present individual. So people are starting to see God. They are starting to see the world and they are starting to see the end times as a very different idea at this point. Now, at the same time, in terms of everything else, art, literature, music, intellectualism. Romanticism is the name of the game. And romanticism and the Second Great Awakening very much go hand in hand. So romanticism is the idea that there is the sublime. And the sublime is the supernatural. It is the occult. It is the unknown. It is greatness beyond all calculation or measurement. Not necessarily God. It can be nature. It can be a feeling. It can be an experience. But romanticism as an overarching concept is a new and restless spirit. It is the opposite of rationalism. It is the opposite of the Age of Enlightenment. It is all about emotion, individualism. It idealizes nature. It gives a really hard distrust of science. And not surprisingly, it's a pushback against the Industrial Revolution, which we already talked about. The industrialization, it's going back to nature. It's trying to discover what is beauty in the natural. There was a very big criticism of society as becoming unthinkingly conforming that they were being mechanized just like machines were. In the United States, this takes a couple of different forms, but nowhere is it more keen than the rise of transcendentalism. Now, transcendentalism does not mean that it transcends human experience, but rather that life is something that through the, the, the sublime is something that through experience becomes possible. Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of the main tenets in his, in his actual um, speech about transcendentalism, stated, quote, the transcendentalist believes in miracles conceived through the perpetual openness of the human mind to an influx of light and power. Bronson Alcott, father of Louisa May Alcott, who again, all were in the transcendental sphere, claimed that truth about Christianity could only be found in the discourse of children. That they had the ability to see life through a different eye. All of this boils down to the idea that we experience God and we experience true greatness 
not through institutions, but through a return to what is natural. And that through experiencing these things in nature, we actually experience them more purely. Now, the catch is, is that they didn't truly mean nature. Not the, you know, get out there, get stuck in the thorns and have to poop in the woods kind of nature. And I always like to pull this in because rural cemeteries are not true nature. And I'll get to that in just a minute when I talk about rural cemeteries, because don't worry, it is actually coming. I'm going to talk about cemeteries, not just history and philosophy. But they are very carefully curated. And so when I think of transcendentalism and romanticism in everything. So, for example, romanticism in Europe often manifested itself in these huge country estates where portions of it were left wild and they would build follies, little like medieval ruins, where they could experience the sublime, the beauty of the architecture, the beauty of the landscape. But it was all contrived. It was all made up. It wasn't an actual ruin. Or Walden, written by Henry David Thoreau, where he goes to the woods to live life to the fullest. But he's also within a convenient walk of town so he can go inside and get a snack and a newspaper. So he's experiencing it, but it's a curated experience of nature. And I think it's important to kind of end on this note because when we start talking about rural cemeteries and how they are designed, you will find that they are also a curated experience. That they are not truly wild. They are not truly unbridled. They are, in fact, a curated experience of nature, and they are a way to people have people safely experience the sublime. Okay, so let's go back to Boston. So, after what happens in 1822, where there's the push to close burial grounds, people start to mobilize. So let's talk about a gentleman named Jacob Bigelow. Born in 1787 in Saugus, Massachusetts, He will live a good long life, dying in 1879. He is the son of a congregational minister, educated starting at Harvard at age 16. He will go to medical school at the University of Pennsylvania. And then he will come back and not only practice medicine for most of his career, but do a number of other things. He is very interested in plants and horticulture, and he actually literally writes the book on New England flora and fauna, something which will be used for the majority of the 19th century. He lectures on plants widely. He is particularly interested in medical pharmacology and the application of plants for medicine. He also teaches applied science from 1816 to 1827. So he is teaching people how to physically make things. He is an amateur architect. He really is a jack-of-all-trades. His son will go on to be a very significant doctor after him. He actually is the first one to popularize the term technology. So, like, when you talk about him, in many ways, the founding of Mount Auburn Cemetery is one of the least interesting things he does in his career, which is quite prolific. So starting in 1825, he gets together a group of men. And I'm going to confess, as hard as I tried, I can't find a complete list of these men. Mount Auburn Cemetery has a very significant archive, and I was able to find a list of founders, but also look at some of them. Some of them are born after it's actually, the cemetery is actually founded. So I don't know if these are just early lot holders, but there are a number of these. I'm going to talk about two in particular. The first is George W. Bremer, who is the man that actually sells them land. Now, I will say it takes them six years to get their act together. And the big part is finding a piece of land for the cemetery. So George W. Bremer will sell them a parcel in Cambridge, Massachusetts, just outside the city, about 10 miles out from the center of Boston, totaling 72 acres, for which they pay $6,000. Now, I want to pause here. This is one of the first big things. The New Haven Burial Ground, Grove Street, was considered huge, and it was six acres. This is 72. This is a massive cemetery. Now, I told you Perlachesse eventually grew to 110 acres. It didn't start that big. This is unprecedented in the history of cemeteries. To put aside this much land for burial of the dead was unheard of. The other thing that really has to happen is that they are not able to do this all on their own. 
So this is where Henry Alexander Scammell comes in. And he is the head of the Massachusetts Horticultural Society. And the Massachusetts Horticultural Society for a long time had been looking for a piece of land to do an experiment on. Where they were looking for a piece of land where they could really explore how to design well and how to really show off their skills. So they agreed to go in on this undertaking. So Henry, Henry Alexander Scamell and a man named Alexander Wadsworth, who, if the Wadsworth name sounds familiar, yes, he was a cousin of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, take this job on. Now, both of these men are interesting because they will go on to design other cemeteries. So, for example, Henry Alexander Scamell will go on to be the designer of Forest Hill Cemetery, also the mayor of Roxbury. Alexander Wadsworth, who was mainly the surveyor for the cemetery, he worked on the plan, but he did the surveying work of the land, um, will go on to design Harmony Grove in Salem, Massachusetts. So these men, they take this, and again, it becomes a large part of their personality and their skill set. <clears throat> now, there's another list of men who I have as being involved in this. I don't know if they are initial investors or not. The oldest document that Mount Auburn has is a catalog of proprietors, which is both the founders and the men who signed the original charter, as well as the lot holders. And that dates to 1835, which is four years after the cemetery begins. So it's possible that some shares were purchased in other people's names. I'm not sure. At some point in the future, I would love to do a deep dive and find who all of those original investors were and to kind of look at them as a profile. But unfortunately, I don't have the time. And as it is, this episode's probably going to run a little bit long. So this land was situated about 125 feet above the Charles River, and it was a beautiful piece of property. The name Mount Auburn was a term supposedly that was coined by students at Harvard. Who, they called the land Sweet Auburn. And it's all based off Oliver Goldsmith's poem called The Deserted Village. And so it was this idealized, beautiful piece of rural land. And so part of this was that they were going to lay it out. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of the characteristics that will define the rural cemetery in just a minute. But so jointly they undertake this. As part of this plan, it will have two things. They will have the cemetery, which is close enough to be accessed, and they will also have a downtown sales office, which will actually continue to operate until 1935, when the Depression causes them to tighten their belt a little bit and they move all of their operations out to Cambridge. But it was located at 16 Bremerton Square in Boston. So you could buy a plot without even having to go to the cemetery. You could go to the sales office downtown. In addition to the laying out of the cemetery, eventually there will be buildings planned. There are three big buildings that will start. There is going to be an Egyptian revival entrance gate, which is designed by Jacob Bigelow himself. There will be a chapel. The chapel is updated several times. It's initially built in the 1840s in the Gothic revival style, also designed by Bigelow. And the Washington Tower. And when I mentioned those follies that were popular in romantic landscapes in Europe, the Washington Tower is really kind of a folly. It doesn't serve any purpose other than to be a place that you can climb and get a good view. This is built in 1852. All of these designed by J Jacob Bigelow. So as I said, he was an amateur architect and he very much influenced this. And if you look at these buildings, they're quite impressive. If you were to ask me as an amateur architect, I would probably build you something out of popsicle sticks. I studied architectural history. I'm still not an architect. As an amateur architect, he did a pretty damn good job. These are very impressive, and they still stand more than a century and a half later. So on September 24th, 1831, Justice Joseph Story, who, yes, justice, meaning justice as in Supreme Court, big, big deal, big deal. He will also be the first president of the cemetery, along with Reverend Dr. Henry Ware and Reverend Mr. John Pierpoint, jointly will dedicate the cemetery. Now, I have the full address here, um, but I am not going to read the whole thing. It's quite lengthy, and it definitely um, tends to run to the verbose, shall I say, but I picked out basically the passage, I think, that really expresses things. 
Quote, it is to the living mourning, mourner, excuse me, to the parent weeping over his dear dead child, to the husband dwelling in his solitary desolation, to the widow whose heart is broken by untimely sorrow, to the friend who misses at every turn the presence of a kindred spirit. It is to these that the repositories of the dead bring home thoughts full of admonition, of instruction, and slowly but surely of consolation also. They admonish us by their very silence of our own frail and transitory being. They instruct us in the true value of life and in its noble purposes, its duties, and its destination. They spread around us in the reminiscences of the past, sources of pleasing thought and melancholy reflection. We dwell with pious fondness on the characters and virtues of the departed, and as time interposes its growing distances between us and them, we gather up with more solicitude the broken fragments of memory and weave, as it were, into our very hearts the threads of their history. As we sit by their graves, we seem to hear the tones of their affection whispering in our ears. We listen to the voice of their wisdom, speaking in the depths of our souls. We shed our tears, but they are no longer the burning tears of agony. They relieve our drooping spirits and come no longer over us with a deathly faintness. We return to the world. We feel ourselves purer and better and wiser from this communication with the dead. So when I discuss the idea of the sublime, the idea that human experience can bring us to the sublime, this is exactly what I'm talking about. In creating rural cemeteries, people believed they were doing a couple of things. They were creating a solution to the growing population, population issues in cities, the urbanization of America. They believed that they were curing a social ill, that they were providing an important social service, creating Christian institutions that would be a benefit to America and would put America on the map. And they also believed that they were creating something which aesthetically, ideologically, really fit into the zeitgeist of the day, the idea of the Second Great Awakening, the idea of romanticism. It served all of these purposes. And I know that's putting a lot of weight on a particular institution in a cemetery, but really if we don't look at cemeteries as a reflection of the values of the people who are being buried there, we're missing the point. Because otherwise we could just be burying people in pits. We really could be. We don't. Why don't we? What do these cemeteries tell us? How are they a reflection of society? And what will happen is that eventually society will move on and these values will change and the cemeteries change too. So understanding the rural cemetery movement as part of the zeitgeist of the day is important. So we're at about 52 minutes right now. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut this off. I'm going to make this a two-parter. And so we are going to continue with our discussion of Mount Auburn Cemetery, where I actually go down and I break down what Mount Auburn looks like, what it actually is, and why it is important and how it continues to influence the development of the rural cemetery movement. I appreciate you sticking with me. I know that that's a lot of history, and it's a lot of history that maybe does not feel particularly relevant, but trust me, it all will start to make sense when we talk about exactly how this comes together as part of the story. I will see you next week. I'm Liz Clappin. This is Tomb of the View.